Nicholas Randazzo, welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here. Looking forward to it. Uh, it's funny because uh, during our email exchanges, you told me to just call you Nick. And yes. it's funny because when I see your last name, I want to call you Randazzle just because it's cool. <laughs> you know what? I'm I'm fine with it. I have been called Randazzle before. I've been called Randall before. So that's hilarious. Whatever you want to call me. It's fine. I'm just I'm just being playful. Yeah. Um, so you are a PhD candidate at Master University in Ham Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Uh, you're actually a colleague of uh, one of my former guests, Ben Pierce, yeah. um, who's just awesome. And your specialty, however, is paleoclimate. I, one of my multiple specialties. Yes. Okay. Yes. Right. Yeah. So what are your other specialties? Um, well, I'm first and foremost, a stabilized taupe geochemist, but I apply this to um, sedimentology, just regular plain geology, but then also I have a lot of applications with the paleoclimatology and astrobiology as well. That's how I know Ben. Wow. So that's a lot for a PhD candidate. What is your yeah. actual like PhD focus on? So I have three PhD projects that I'm working on and three that are side projects. Um, yeah. Are you like superhuman or something? Um, I think I'm more just insane. I think that's probably okay. more okay. correct. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Go on. Sorry. Uh, yeah. So what are the three projects? So my one project is actually trying to reconstruct the, um, global sea level during the Turonian. The Turonian is just a, it's a really hot period of the Cretaceous. Um, so like in my field say we go, we find dinosaur bones and um, dinosaur footprints and things like that. But basically we're trying to see if back then, like the average surface temperature, a uh, sea surface temperature was like 35 degrees, was significantly hotter than it is today. There were crocodiles and flowers up in the Arctic. But one of the questions is, could ice still have been present in Antarctica at this point in time? And some of the research says the coast waters around the continent of Antarctica were probably too warm, but we think there could be evidence of ice within the continent. And the only real way we can do this is try to find evidence of um, freeze-thaw cycles. So because these ice sheets in Antarctica, they're so big, when they melt, they add a significant amount of water to the uh, global ocean. So sea levels actually rise a significant amount. And if we try to pair that with uh, Milankovitch cyclicity, we can try to see if there is some sort of periodicity. So like, are we having sea level changes that are on the order of, let's say, 100,000 or 400,000 years, which is in sync with Earth's um, eccentricity? Or if there's like an obliquity, the, the Earth's like the angle in which the Earth tilts. Like right now it's at 23.5, but that changes every uh, 41,000 years. So just trying to find with using age dates and things like that, if we can pair that with sea level to find evidence that um, there was actually ice. And then this has, this has implications towards uh, like global warming. Like this place was significantly warmer than it is now, but there was still ice. Um, and then my other projects are either using geochemical pro uh, proxies, which I'll talk about later, um, to help reconstruct the environment. So like, what was the atmospheric uh, CO2 pressure like at the time? Or what was the temperature that things were deposited at? Or um, what, was the, what were the oxygen levels in the water column that my sediment core that I'm taking all my samples from uh, was like, was, was it anoxic, in which case we're getting a lot of organic carbon preservation, or was it oxic, in which case 
all those little plankton and things that die when they fall to the bottom, are they just decomposing and then that's it and, and it's perfectly fine. So, and then that also has implications towards biosignatures and petroleum exploration. And uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's mainly just a Taylor climate. Uh, yeah. So there's a, I mean, I had like maybe 20, 10 questions in the first <laughs> five sentences. So um, for me, what's most interesting here is that the earth, um, regardless of man-made activity, let's say the earth has, mm-hmm. because it has evolved, obviously. Right. I yeah. mean, like you said, every 40,000 years, there's a massive shift. Well, yeah, there's, there's multiple things that affect, um, multiple things affect climate in general, but in terms of uh, like Milankovitch cycles, there's basically um, like the earth's wobble changes. So that caught, there's a 23,000 year um, cycle for that. And then the tilt is 41,000 years. And then the eccentricity has uh, its own, like a hundred thousand um, as an example, a hundred thousand year uh, cycle. Do we well. know what causes this stuff? Like why does the earth wobble all of a sudden? Yeah, it's basically just interactions with other planetary bodies. So like the Earth's eccentricity around the sun is affected by, because it's not just Earth that's revolving around the sun, like there, there's Jupiter and there's Saturn. So like Jupiter and Saturn's pull on the Earth over time can add up and change things or like the um, gravitational pull like of, of the moon or just like Mars and Venus, which are also close or, or the sun itself, which also kind of wobbles um but, yeah. so is this like a, a butterfly effect as in if somebody were to i mean an alien life form were to blow up jupiter would oh, that obviously impact us yeah we're we'll probably like die jupiter catches so many asteroids for us <laughs> that uh if, if big brother's not there to get rid of those asteroid bullies yeah we're, we probably won't last too long Okay, so that's interesting. I didn't actually know that we were so dependent on other planets, you know, mm-hmm. like if, if uh, Saturn's um, axis or rotation were to, to stall or something, or even if, I would imagine even if the rings of Saturn were to be affected, that could impact Saturn itself, which would then butterfly affect us, right? Uh, potentially, yeah. Like, it, it's, it, there really is a lot of, uh, like, I guess, a, a synergy between all, all the planets and, and that actually allows life to exist right? and these are some of the questions that we have when looking for evidence of life on other planets right it's not just like okay how close is it to their star is it close enough for liquid water therefore it must have planets like well no 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 uh does it have um like tectonics is that something that we we may or may not need which we thought the answer was yes because uh volcanism introduces like co2 into the atmosphere creates or like into the air of the planet creates an atmosphere and then you allow greenhouse um like warming to happen basically but there's also a thing called a stagnant lid planet, in which case it doesn't actually have active Vulcan, or active plate tectonics. So that may not necessarily be a requirement, but there are things like, you know, do we have a planet that can help catch asteroids and nothing hits it? Um, what's its atmosphere like? You know, what's the size of the planet, right? Like um, Mars is really small and ended up actually, it's geologically dead now, tech- well, we think for the most part. And it doesn't have a magnetosphere now as a result of that. And now its atmosphere was stripped away by solar winds. So now you know, the atmosphere, Mars is like six millibars, where before you could have been like 500 millibars or could have been like an in, into the bars could have been much higher. But um, yeah, like there's, there's all these different factors that we need to consider that a lot of times uh, we might not really think about it, but it's there really is like a little butterfly effect that if you, you change one thing, it might make the difference in a planet being uh, habitable to going to not so habitable. 
Do you, are you able to tell by looking in the past where we're at now? Like, where are we in terms of like when the earth might rotate, like do this axis rotation stuff? Like, are you able to, to know like, okay, this is actually, we're, we're in for another ice age, for example. Yeah. Um, actually we have a really good understanding of, um, pretty much everything that affects earth's climate, like not just the orbital cycles itself, but also uh, like solar cycles, or we have a really good understanding of uh, tectonics and the effects of volcanism. And um, one of the major things that my research looks at, like paleoclimatology, is looking at these things called climate archives and um, how we can reconstruct the climate from millions to even billions of years ago and get an understanding of what Earth would have been like. And because we have this understanding of how climate has changed in the past, we can actually make inferences to the current climate change, right? So like for any listeners that aren't really certain, like the global warming being caused right now is undoubtedly caused by humans, like us, us releasing those greenhouse gases. Like I, I, we, we, we have a model of how climate has changed, how temperature has changed um, over the past few million years. And the current rise is quite significant. Like it's unlike anything that we've seen, like, between the industrial age to now, like in 200 years, um, like temperature has increased significantly. The amount of CO2 in the atmosphere has increased significantly. So it's, we actually have a, a much better understanding of the, uh, of the past than I think a lot of people think. And that, that is actually one of the things I did write down, which is a, mm-hmm. you know, because I, I don't like, um, you know, pretty much shitting on people who don't don't believe in climate change or whatever, because I think there's a, there's a chance for us to explain certain things. And I think, um, you know, the, the people that I am aware of that are climate change deniers, let's say, yeah. are people who know, who believe climate change is real, but they don't yet believe that it's caused by man. They think, mm-hmm. oh, well, the earth goes through these cycles every, you know, X amount of thousands of years. I mean, this is just a natural occurrence and blah, blah, blah. blah. And and then NASA just recently announced that the moon is wobbling and that's going to cause rising sea levels. So it's the moon's yeah. fault. It's not our fault. Um, but what you're saying here is really interesting. You're saying, well, actually, yes, you know, earth does have a tendency to, to warm and change and cool yeah. and all these things. But the what's unprecedented is at the level it's at right compared to the past and and you've been looking like how far back have you been looking so my my research um specifically only goes back 90 million years um only only only, 90 million yeah (laughs) but like we we have like climate archives that can go back way further so i i said the word climate archive it's basically um any sort of material that just by its nature is able to uh, retain some sort of climate uh, climatic evidence. And like these archives might be like ice cores or sediments or corals or tree rings or uh, foraminifera. And basically like in the case of ice cores, um, when they form, like we can look at the banding of the ice cores, which can tell us a little bit about like, is it summer, if it's winter, but then there's things like, um, gas bubbles that get caught so we can actually take measurements of the atmosphere because this gas bubble got caught in the ice let's say two hundred thousand years ago and it's been there this whole time and now like you and i go out to antarctica and we we drill a core and there's these ice bubbles and we can actually sample the gas that was stuck in there or you can look at things like uh the pollen record um so like 
oak as an example grows in very warm climates but then there's like prairie grass which grows in dry climates and spruce that's a little bit more cooler so if you start looking at the pollen record throughout let's say you have lake sediment or let's say you have an ice core or something like that let's say lake sediment will probably make more sense but you can start looking and say okay well we know we age dated it so we know the approximate dates and 10,000 years ago there was a lot more oak pollen implying that it was uh, warm but then all of a sudden the oak pollen starts to decline around let's say 8,000 years ago and prairie grass goes up so now it's it was a, it was a drier climate and then let's say 2,000 years ago spruce was a lot higher so now we you know went to to cold so we can actually start making these comparisons and then um, my research primarily focuses on stable isotopes but I also look at um, also use like energy dispersive x-ray fluorescence so you can look at actual um, elements within a core itself and then certain elements will be present under certain environments just because they might form uh, molecules that just tend to last at a certain time so like manganese if uh, if i'm looking at a sediment core that was underwater would be very prominent during oxygen rich environments but then i can start looking at things like um let's say molybdenum uh, and vanadium go up and then that could appear in more anoxic or even um, waxinic. It's like sulfur rich. Um, so it's, it's not only there's a lot, a lot of uh, oxygen in there, but there's also a lot of like um, bacteria that like sulfur reduction is occurring as well. So like we can, we can do that. And in terms of looking at stable isotopes, uh, so stable isotopes are different from uh, radioactive isotopes. So radioactive isotopes, like uranium-238, they go under a radioactive decay. So they'll slowly, like, they'll, they'll decay into daughter products. So like uranium will become thorium, and then that will decay further. Whereas stable isotopes, they're exactly that. They're stable. So their concentration in the environment doesn't change. So like uh, oxygen-18, if there's oxygen-18 in something, it will always be like that. Oxygen-18 isn't changing to anything. Okay, I'm going to stop you right here yeah. because I'm a little I'm a little lost now because sure. you're you're now talking about isotopes. Why are we talking about isotopes? What is it that you're looking at exactly? Yeah, so um, so I'll, I'll I'll rewind a little bit too. So isotopes, basically, for anybody who doesn't know, they're they're atoms that have the same number of protons, but there's uh, the neutrons are different. So like the the typical uh, oxygen isotope has oxygen. It's oxygen sixteen. So there's eight neutrons, eight protons, um, making 16 because you add the eight and eight. But then there's also oxygen 17 and oxygen 18. So let's say in the case of oxygen 18, there's two more neutrons in that. So that's, that's a stable isotope of oxygen. And basically what happens is these things are the environment and certain processes will actually cause uh, a preference of one isotope over another. So these are called uh, like kinetic ice like these are kinetic fractionation so like evaporation when water evaporates it will preferentially evaporate water molecules containing oxygen 16 rather than oxygen 18 or precipitation will prefer oxygen 18 over oxygen 16 um photosynthesis okay, so, yeah so if you're measuring isotopes or, or or essentially it's telling you if water is going up going down evaporating whatever this this these are markers is what you're saying yes yeah okay. okay so these are basically proxies so we can actually look at isotopes within let's say 
uh, foraminifera or within ice cores or within sediments or within corals. And they can start to tell us things about the environment. And with like oxygen isotopes looks at um, temperature. So using that, we can look at the oxygen isotopes and tell what the temperature would have been like, let's say at the time a coral was forming. Or uh, so, so, okay, so you're like digging a hole, like you said, you know, you and I take off, we go to, you know, Antarctica, we bring this like giant tool that can actually bore like a big ice sample. From there, you're telling me that you can actually look at a layer of ice and be like, oh, yeah, it was, you know, 12 degrees uh, Celsius at this time of year in, you know, whatever year BC kind, kind of thing. Is that, is, that, is, that, is that what essentially you're getting at? Uh, yeah, basically, uh, especially if you're looking at something with calcium carbonate, like you can, you can definitely like, like a coral or a foraminifera, you can definitely tell the formation temperature ice. It's more like you can look at the, like the air bubbles stuck within the, the ice core itself, or like things that are caught within the ice, like pollen or, or like dust wow. and things like that. Yeah. Um, wow. the thing with ice is like ice melts, right? So you, you yeah. can only go so far. <laughs> And then also after a certain point, the ice kind of gets deformed to the point where like, it's probably not trustworthy. So like in Antarctica, you could get like an ice record that goes back like 800,000 years. Uh, in Greenland, it might be more like 400,000 years, but still like you can take, let's say atmospheric samples from little gas bubbles in ice and know what the climate was like 400,000 years ago uh, in the environment. Or if you look at things like corals, like you can see like, okay, when this coral formed, uh, this is what the the temperature would have been like, and and you can do that with uh, any any of the stabilized isotopes. Like they all have different, they're all proxies for different types of environmental parameters. Um, so wow, like, that is wild. Have yeah. you actually ever like been to Greenland or Antarctica? Like, have you actually held a really old sample of something that you know, like a, a coral or something or ice? Um, I've never been, unfortunately, to Greenland or Antarctica. But my field site is in like Utah, New Mexico area. Okay. Um, so that's all like Cretaceous age dinosaur, uh, time of the dinosaurs kind of stuff. But have I held stuff? Yeah, actually, um, earlier today, we did a, like a, a graduate student led field trip hike, uh, just in just like uh, looking at some of the geology of Hamilton. And a lot of these rocks are, um, they're about 400 and 35 million years old and you can like just walk along the Niagara escarpment and you can start like picking out uh like crinoid fossils and these are sea lilies that 435 years ago when you know Hamilton was at like 20 degrees latitude and much much warmer and much more tropical than it is today you actually had like and and we were we were underwater at this point in time too like there's there's sea lilies or you can have uh trilobites which are like these little arthropod like creatures, they're um, one of the first creatures to actually de uh, develop um, eyes uh, as we would recognize them. Um, yeah, so you have these little fossils. I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't know that about trilobites. That's it's interesting because I actually um, I picked up a few. I, you know, I've been looking at rocks more and more. I'm kind of starting to nerd out on them now. So oh, it's yeah. kind of like my new thing. And I picked up a, a you know a, a rock full of just all these fossils, and like I think they're like the ones like like crinoids and all that stuff mm -hmm. and and i guess it makes sense because ottawa was also you know underwater for yeah. millions of years or whatever so you're gonna mm -hmm. get all these fossils so i guess it's really not that rare to hold something in your hand that's like millions of years old yeah it's it's really not um 
it, it's kind of unfortunate. We were underwater back then, but we weren't underwater when the dinosaurs were around. So any dinosaurs that were kind of walking around in, in Ottawa or in Hamilton, like they've, they died on land and their bodies were all eroded away and they're basically gone. But then you go to like Alberta and there's these beautiful fossils that, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, but. that's definitely one thing I want to do is, is you know, look for like dinosaur stuff in Alberta one day, you know, maybe yeah. go on like a, you know, one of those tours or something, but. <laughs> oh yeah, that'd be perfect. Yeah, yeah uh, for sure. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay. So you're studying all of these things about um, the climate. Uh, so I'll go back to the question that I asked earlier, which is like, do we, you know, do we know where Earth is at right now? And what is the biggest thing that you would say from looking at the past to the threats for the future? Um, you know, what are, what would you, be your concerns as a scientist? Obviously, man-made warming yeah. is yeah. A top priority, I think, on everybody's minds right now, anybody who's a scientist, at least, and hopefully more people yeah. out, out there in the world, politicians, etc. But Outside of that, is there other are there other things that are kind of like oh you're like huh this is interesting you know this could be happening in the future based on what we know from the past. Um yeah like there's always like concert like asteroids uh, hitting the Earth or like um, coronal mass ejections from the sun being pointed at Earth and like wiping out our technology like like there's always concerns like that I'd probably say. Global warming is probably the biggest concern um, that like earth scientists and environmental scientists are primarily focused at. And that's probably where the majority of uh, our research into the past, it's, its main application is to just basically try to understand um, the future and, and just looking basically into the rock record. Cause that's, that's the best record we have of what life was like back then uh, anytime you're interested in and um, actually studying what's the, um, you know, what happened back then and what are the implications. Um, another thing that's actually cool, just sorry to go back to isotopes again, mm -hmm, are please. the uh, carbon isotopes. So carbons, carbon has a stable isotope that's carbon 12. And then there's, um, that's like the regular uh, version of carbon, we'll call it. And then the actual uh, heavier version that we look at is carbon-13. There's carbon-14 too, but it's, it's uh, radiogenic. But we'll, we'll go back to that later. And carbon is basically um, photosynthesis preferentially takes in carbon-12, leaving carbon-13 um, into the atmosphere. But what's neat is when you start looking at things like, like, like go back to my research during the Cretaceous, um, plankton would take in carbon 12 they die they fall down to the bottom of the of the ocean floor and if they happen to be let's say buried let's say there was a storm event or anything where they they fell and sediment covered them up and there wasn't actually a chance for them to decompose that carbon 12 that they took into their bodies gets actually locked away in the geological record and uh, then we can actually start to monitor things like we, we can create a stable isotope curve and we can start seeing like, okay, when, when this isotope spikes here, that means one thing. When this isotope spikes in the opposite direction, it means something else. So we can actually look at these periods of, um, of anoxia, like low ox or no oxygen versus uh, oxia. But what's interesting too is those buried plankton are now our petroleum products, like fossil fuels came from plankton. So when we burn those, we actually end up getting this 
very, uh, the way you measure isotopes is you put the heavier one on top. So carbon 13 relative to carbon 12. So we'll say carbon 13 depleted um, because there's more carbon 12 compared to 13. So it's, it's carbon 13 depleted uh, fossil fuels or carbon being released into the atmosphere. And carbon 14, the radio uh, isotope version of it too, is also useful just because uh, carbon 12 decays after like 5,700 some odd years. So this carbon 12 from those organic matter that we've now releasing as fossil fuels is basically like carbon 12 or carbon 14 depleted, right? There, that, that carbon 14 has now completely decayed. So we're actually releasing very carbon 13 depleted or also carbon 14 depleted um, carbon back into the atmosphere. And we know the volume of Earth's atmosphere and how much CO2 is in. So when actually, when you look at the isotopic composition of the atmosphere and you compare it to, let's say, carbon, um, carbon isotopes from, let's say, volcanism, which also releases a lot of CO2, but you can actually look at the isotopic signature of the atmosphere and you can start to compare. And this is one of the ways that we can confirm that, in fact, a lot of the carbon that's in the atmosphere causing uh, global warming is in fact carbon that's released as fossil fuels. Like it has an isotopic signature that matches like what we would expect from the burning of oil. So that's the scientific explanation for when the news media says, oh, fossil fuels are to blame for climate change. That's yeah. the scientific explanation, which is, well, it's because there were, were this, this molecule i guess this carbon 13 is getting into the is carbon 13 getting into the atmosphere right or is it carbon 12 it, changing it, into 13 well it's 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 carbon 13 we call it carbon 13 depleted but it actually just oh. means that it's it's rich in carbon 12 because it's depleted in 13 so it's it has more 12 therefore what does this actually do to the atmosphere what this this increase in in this depleted carbon what does it actually do so the carbon itself, like, like as a CO2 can, as a molecule doesn't necessarily um, care if it's got carbon 12 or carbon 13 in terms of like global warming, like it's not necessarily like um, CO2 containing carbon 12 is more effective at trapping uh, solar energy from the sun onto Earth's surface. Like that's, that's not necessarily the case. It's more about this, the, it has a unique signature that we can now link to its source. Um, and then people also do studies like you can like move around, let's say compare Hamilton, Ottawa, Toronto, you can go to these different metropolitans, but then also go to these farming communities and you can look at uh, the isotopic signature of the atmosphere and you can see like, okay, is there more of an influence from um, carbon 12, carbon 13? Like, like, is there more fossil fuels in the immediate atmosphere around there? Um, yeah, so, so sorry. So well, I guess the, the 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 main question then is why why does it matter if there's more fossil fuels? Like, what does it actually do to the atmosphere? So the atmosphere, what it basically does is it traps heat. So Earth, um, there's long wave radiation that's coming from the Earth itself, but then there's the short wave radiation from the sun. So just like if you've ever been inside of an actual greenhouse, mm -hmm. um, like it, it's as soon as you walk in there, it's pretty it's pretty hot and humid. And basically the reason is the sun from like the, like the, the sunlight from the, uh, it goes through the glass and then actually gets trapped in there. So you can actually keep that heat. So that's essentially what's happening is there's these thick layers, there's this thick amount of gas that's now in the atmosphere. So 
CO2 is what we're talking about, but there's also like um, methane gas, which is actually like 25 to 30 times even more effective as a greenhouse gas um, than, than CO2 itself. And it just, it traps heat. And then this heat has implications in terms of causing droughts, in terms of causing uh, melting ice, which then could cause uh, a positive feedback too, because ice is white and it will reflect sunlight. But as that melts and you start seeing, let's say, uh, dirt or um, the ocean itself, which are darker colors, they'll tend to absorb even more solar energy. So it actually ends up further continuing this rate of, of melting. So that's called different changing in albedo. Um, that also happens. So, and then you have the melting of ice, which is not only adding more water to Earth's oceans, causing sea level to rise, but then there's also something called thermal expansion. So actually ocean water itself, just by being heated, will actually naturally expand just as the molecules go a little further apart from each other. So thermal expansion plus the melting of ice will now cause sea level to rise, which then not only causes problems for a lot of island nations, but it can also like, you know, like New York City is... I was just about to mention New York. (laughs) Yeah, like if you start increasing sea level by, you know, six meters, 10 meters, 20 meters, like all of a sudden places like New York um, get submerged in water or, you know, places in Florida. So like it's not necessarily just these island nations that, um, which would be absolutely devastated if something like this happens, but it's also places that we're familiar with that we have a lot of populations, like a lot of human population lives near the coastline or um, near rivers and things like that are, are going to cause that. Um, heating also, like I said, meant causes droughts, which can then lead to more forest fires. And we've seen fires in California and Australia, and even here in Ontario, we're getting fires. Um, it's just, there, there are so many different implications for life and and not just human settlements but then also like plants and animals animals. yeah I was I interviewed David Johns who's the head of the continuous plankton recorder survey out in England and he was telling me about one case where they found a plankton no a copepod I think it was a copepod that's um from the Pacific and they found it on the Atlantic coast and they discovered that they, they assume what happened is because of climate change, it actually went all the way above the Arctic and ended up on the east coast of Canada wow. uh, somehow, which is obviously very interesting. And the data is very interesting. They have very, very, very old and very accurate data um, mm-hmm. over there and just monitoring the plankton, right? Because that's a, a, another sign of things like global warming. What, oh, yeah. what are the plankton doing? If they're moving around, mm-hmm. obviously you want to track and see that information. Um, and then, you know, all the things that you mentioned that, um, that uh, global warming would cause compound that with like this recent news article about from NASA saying that the moon is wobbling and it's going to cause levels to to rise in in the 2030s as though that doesn't compound the effect already. Well, absolutely. Right. Like, yeah, the moon controls the tides. So if, if that's going to, now we're actually going to have more tidal um, sea level like tidal based sea level rise compounded, like you said, with all this. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's a mess. And I think a lot of people don't know. Yeah. It's, yeah. yeah. Um, I, and then that's one of the things I, I do like to bring up uh, is, is science communication because 
when I first started this podcast and when I first started uh, A Tiny World, which I'm, I, I think oh, you're familiar yeah. with, which is my microscopic project, yeah. I was really, you know, gung-ho about scientists doing SciComm. Now I'm having a little bit of a change of of perspective only because I've heard from scientists who feel like they're forced to do science communication, which I don't agree mm. with. I think it should be a voluntary um, aspect to science where a, a science who a scientist who just wants to do research yeah. should be encouraged to just do his or her or their research mm -hmm. and just do their thing. Um, whereas scientists who are gung ho, like yourself, who are, who are game to do psychom, go for it. Great. Awesome. That being said, I think there's a role for a middle person, for somebody yeah. who's a communications expert to uh, to talk science. I want to know your, your perspective on this, because I've had this conversation with a few scientists on this show, and I'd love to know, like, what's your what are your thoughts on this new wave of science communication, and should it be a requirement? I, I don't think it should be a requirement, because I, I think one of the issues with science communication is uh, science isn't always communicated very well. And I feel like if you're not passionate about it, like if you're being forced to do it, chances are you're probably not going to do that great of a job um, just because it's you're strictly doing it because you you're forced to. Um, so I think you need to be passionate about it because I think before anything else, people will sense your enthusiasm. And if you're really passionate about it, they might be more willing to listen to what you have to say and they might be able to actually be able to maintain their focus. Um, because we've all had people talk to us that are monotone and like, you could be really interested in the topic, but if, if they're not enthusiastic, you, you can't help but start to maybe not listen as much as you would like to. Um, so I think enthusiasm is important. The, the middle ground, I think probably is a, a nice little sweet spot where it's, yeah, you, you, you're, you kind of get the best of both worlds. I think like, I, I think we, we do need people that focus strictly on the research itself but then there's also people that you know like doing strictly science communication is great for some people but it is great to actually be like physically active in in the field and, and not just say like well here's something that i i've learned about and let's talk about it. like this is like this is actually something that i physically worked on myself and it's really cool because of x y and z reasons so i think um the middle ground is actually quite nice yeah is that is that why you do it? And, and and I ask you this question, especially because you work with climate and you're you're, mm -hmm. you're studying the past. You know more than anybody else who could. You know more than I could. You know, in terms of like what the future holds. Like you said, this is the reason why you study the past is to get some insight into the future. Correct. Is that one of the reasons why you're so passionate about getting the word out? Yeah, I, I think. Well, I think everything's really cool. Like I couldn't wait to start talking to you about isotopes and I don't even think I set everything up. So I'm like, oh, so isotopes. And um, <laughs> so uh, I think it's really cool. I think um, science is something that I think everybody, I think everybody likes the idea of science, but they don't always get the chance to learn about it um, properly. Let's say like you might learn it in high school and then that's kind of it. And then you go about the rest of your life, never really, talking or thinking about science ever again, but I think there's still that interest. So I think personally, I, I really like talking to people about science in general, and I do like communicating these things because I think there are a lot of issues and topics that people are generally interested in, but it's just the science a lot of times just kind of turns them off because they haven't really spent that time thinking or talking about science. So when you start mentioning words like, like isotopes, or you start saying things like talk about orbital cycles, 
you you lose people. So I think it's 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 worthwhile trying to talk to people about this to understand the why, because when they understand the why, then they can almost under, have a better understanding of the entire issue as a whole. Um, like instead of just saying like, okay, don't drive your car so much because you're releasing fossil fuels and that's warming the globe. And then you're like, but why? So then like, okay, well, cause the greenhouse effect does this, 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 and this. And we know like, as an example, looking at isotopes, we can actually see why the, like, that we know for sure it's, it's, it's uh, fossil fuels that are being burned that are causing this. So then you can actually give them a better understanding and, and a better grasp. And I, I think people are generally appreciative of, of something like that. If you can communicate it in like a, in a fun and like engaging manner and like not talk down to people, but then at the same time, not like not being so vague that like, like, okay, like you, you threw some words at me and I still don't understand what's going on. Um, Yes, again, I think there's a sweet spot. Sorry. I, I think I think transparency is a big one and, yeah. and non-judgment. I think that's uh, where a lot of scientists mi- miss the mark. I can say that because I'm not a scientist and I'm not in academia. So I'm not, I, I can always, I don't have to deal with a lot of the bullshit that comes out of academia. But Fair essentially, enough. it's true. I mean, I think, I think there, there's a you know, being judgment free, I think you're right, you know, just mm. explain it in terms being being curious and, and encouraging other people's curiosity. Yeah. is so beautiful. Yeah. And I mean, it's great that you're doing it. Um, you mentioned cars as, as an example, which is uh, really, really fun because of the the push now for, you know, EV cars and yeah. electronic vehicles and all that stuff, because people like it or not do have to get around, you yeah. know, they have to travel, it's, it's great to you know, one day you'll, you'll want to get to Greenland. Maybe we'll have uh, electric uh, planes, maybe. Yeah. I don't know if that's the future. Uh, cool. Do you think as a scientist that that will make a big dent in fossil fuels? To go to alternative uh, forms of fuel, yeah. like like next-gen nuclear reactors and things like that? Um, mm-hmm. To a degree, yes. But I, I think we, like, we need to stop releasing fossil fuels into the... Like, I know it's not... Let's, oil is the lifeblood of civilization right now, but um, we can do a bunch of these alternative methods, which will help. But until we stop actually pumping things into the atmosphere, it's only going to help so much. Like, you know, you can plant um, like a, a trillion trees and yeah, it will help. But then if you look at how much carbon uh, trees will capture compared to how much carbon we're releasing to the atmosphere, like, it's it's still dwarfed, right? So if you stop that input into the atmosphere and then you start doing things like planting more trees and now these alternative uh, forms of energy, like then you're going to start noticing a difference. Then you can, let's say, try to mitigate some of those long-term effects of climate change. But even, even if all the oil, let's say, stopped uh, right now, uh, there's still a lot of effects that are like still in the pipeline. So it's not like, okay, all like all cars and factories and cruise ships and everything, planes, everything are going to stop emitting fossil fuels. Like right now at this, at this moment, it's not like global warming is going to suddenly change. Like there, there's still going to be some warming effects. There's still going to be some, um, some consequences from the, the previous release. And then eventually once all those effects from the pipeline are done, then maybe things can start getting reversed. But I think some things have also been, the the damage is uh, irreversible. So now it's a matter of trying to to cope and 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 move on, and try to find some form of of normalcy while still kind of preserving the environment as best as possible, and also 
um, like people's livelihoods, right? Like, like even, even fishing industries and things like fish are moving more north as waters get warmer or just like migration patterns of animals in general change. So what does that mean for these communities that are, let's say, primarily composed of, uh, of fishermen? Like they're, the, the whole industries can actually start to collapse, right? So now they need to try to reinvent themselves just to, just to make a living. Like there, there's, there's so many effects um, throughout the entire socioeconomic ladder that we need to consider. Sorry. Yeah, it's uh, it, no, don't don't be sorry. It's yeah. <laughs> it. I mean, there. Yeah, there. There are so many consequences to to, to this stuff, and and mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I'm not talking more about isotopes, but okay. the thing that thing that that's um, really interesting to me is also something that you said at the beginning of the interview, which is that the Earth, or sorry, the Arctic used to be. Uh, uh, full of like alligators and and things yeah. like, like to me that's the, that's I mean isotopes are cool and all that stuff and and but to me the the big picture is what really fascinates me is this idea that there was a time there mm-hmm. used to be a time when yeah. the Arctic had alligators and had like you know wasn't full of ice like that to me is what just blows my simpleton mind here you know <laughs> i'm yeah. just like wow <laughs> you know um so what the heck happened like i guess this was just the normal cycle of the earth and then it, it got followed up with an ice age yeah um the earth's entire climate history is is filled with these cycles basically uh like i'll i'll, I'll talk about co2 so a lot of CO2 in the atmosphere causes a warming. Um, this also causes uh, chemical weathering. So the CO2 in the atmosphere then actually mixes with the water that like that, and that will fall as rain. And now it's actually acidic rain. And then that actually starts to chemically weather rocks. But now some of these rocks actually end up capturing and retaining some of that CO2. And like there'll be deposits like what we know today is let's say calcium carbonate or a carbonate of, of some sort, um, just because there's different types of carbonates as well. So then over time, that will actually start to remove CO2 from the atmosphere, and then we'll actually start to get a, a cooling. So as CO2 is gradually removed from the atmosphere, we get a cooling. Now, this is not... This happens over millions of years. This is not like a, a potential. Yeah, like this isn't like, <laughs> I've solved global warming. Just, yes. you know, um, it's not anything like that. It's it's just, um, so yeah, we can wait millions of years and things will go back to normal, of course, but we'll, we may not be around as humanity um, at that point in time. But yeah, like, so there's these, there's these constant feedback loops that will eventually start to um, change the climate or like an example I gave before where, when these uh, plankton get buried in, in the ocean and, and they're, they're trapped, like that carbon that's now getting locked away from the atmosphere can actually mean there's more oxygen that doesn't actually end up forming CO2. And then over time, like then you also have um, these bacteria that like to reduce sulfate. And that's what they use for their food in, in redox conditions. But then they might start to deplete the sulfate and then um, now there's more iron that doesn't have to bond with the sulfate to form pyrite. Now that iron's loose and now we'll start to bond with phosphates. And now there's less phosphates in the ocean, which means the plankton don't live as much. Like they don't proliferate as much. So now they start to die off. So now there's, there's not as much um, oxygen removal because a lot of times when they die, they decompose and they use up oxygen. And then 
uh, if they get buried, then then the carbon that they incorporate in their bodies is locked out too. But like you, you can get these cycles where now like, okay, you oxygen can now get reintroduced into the system just naturally. And you could go from being a very oxygen poor environment to over time, gradually going to um, uh, like a disoxic, which is kind of an oxygen low. And then you can eventually become a fully oxic environment again um, with time and then everything's happy again. And then once again, you start getting more plankton proliferating and then they slowly deplete the oxygen in the water column again. And then the cycle goes back to being uh, oxygen depleted. There's an old uh, George Carlin joke. I don't know if you've ever listened to the, the comedian George Carlin, but the, no, he said, you know, we don't have to save the planet. The planet will be fine. It's yeah. the humans. The humans will just die off. Who cares? The earth will be fine. She'll take care of herself. <laughs> you know? well, I mean, it's a very, it's a very really cynical look at, at life, but it is yeah. perhaps even a little true, right? It, honestly, yeah, it is true. Like, we've had at least five major extinction events that have happened throughout earth history. And like the uh, Permian extinction right before the, the Jurassic, like 95, 96% of all life on earth was wiped out and like things are fine today. Right. Like, like mother nature, or like, if you want to treat mother nature, the earth as an entity, like we'll be fine. Like mother nature doesn't personally care if like, humans live on the planet or if they or if it's dinosaurs or if it's like humans died now like squids evolve and now there's intelligent squids living on land like mother nature doesn't care um mother nature doesn't care about polar bears or if new york is underwater or anything like that but we do and there's implications that we face for that right like we we don't want to see species go extinct we don't want to see certain industries um go bankrupt or we don't want to see these people get displaced both in in developing but also in in developed nations like we we don't want to want to see that right like there's a lot of these we don't want to have droughts because now like farmers lose their business and now there's less food and like what does that mean or um so there's there's a lot of like there's multiple tiers of society that are are getting basically affected at once so like that's mainly why we care about global warming the earth itself will be fine. Yeah. The, the earth, like has, there's been at least five mass extinctions and earth is fine. Um, it's just, what does it mean for society as a whole? Yeah. Humanity and, and the, the animal kingdom and all this stuff. Right. Yeah. Um, is this, so I want to talk to, uh, about you personally a little bit here, cause we've got about sure. 15 minutes left and is this really, you know, we, we've really been talking more about global warming than I thought we would. Um, yeah. But I, I guess, is this something really that you're obviously passionate about? Like, is this your, your cause, your, your raison d'être is, um, is this kind of education? Um, I kind of consider myself like, um, like I, I, I want to be like a, I consider myself almost like a modern Renaissance person. Like I like kind of like, like everything, like I even paint um so well we're gonna get to that but yes okay um yeah so like i'm i'm passionate about earth environmental sciences this is my field but like you can get me on another episode we can like talk about ancient egypt like i love ancient egypt and i've taken courses on that and i can talk to you all about uh hetshepsut's uh journey to punt which is we think is modern day ethiopia like or um, like astrobiology and astronomy or, or, or just anthropology. Like there's a lot of different things that I have interests in. Like I'm fortunate that Stable Isotopes, my, my, my bread and butter pretty much, um, is a very 
versatile field. Like I can take the tools I'm using right now to study climate change and use it to look at forensics and like saying like, oh, like, you know, looking at the carbon and nitrogen in a person's tooth can tell me about their, their diet. And then I can like roughly estimate if it's a missing person, maybe what their culture would have been based upon the diet that they ate or where their geographic location is based upon the hydrogen isotopes in their hair. Um, is this something you want to do as a career maybe later on <laughs> is working forensics? I'm just curious. Um, that's a really good question. So right now, I, I, I do want to focus on earth and environmental sciences, but one day if I'm fortunate enough to have my own laboratory, I, I probably would uh, branch out into forensics as well. Like, like try to have like, I, I would consider myself just like an iso, like a stabilized isotope chemist, not necessarily a geochemist, just like a chemist that now applies stabilized isotopes and things like that to problems throughout, um, like human interest, basically. Like I have an archaeologist friend who found a little town in Rome, and I told him like, "Hey, if you found any bodies, like, it'd be cool to do some like sulfur isotope studies on them, like." You know, but cool. like, yeah, that that that's definitely definitely like if you were to d start doing that kind of stuff, I definitely would be like, hey, we're doing another episode and we're just talking about that because that's oh, a, yeah. a whole other field. That's a whole oh, yeah. other branch, and it is absolutely fascinating. Yeah. You mentioned uh, painting. You also mentioned filmmaking in terms oh. of interests. I saw that in your profile. Um, I actually I I have worked in filmmaking uh, for a while. Oh. I, I've kind of gotten out of the field because I don't think it's for me. I don't like working with other people that I can't necessarily choose oh, <laughs> who to fair, work with but I really it did enjoy the actual experience of being a director being a producer mm -hmm. uh it's a really cool thing are you making films as well or are you just uh, kind of more of a film critic um as of right now I'll probably just say more of a film critic okay um I I do have some stories that I would like to have developed at least in written form I don't know if that will ever develop anything. Maybe I'll just end up publishing it as a book or a comic book or who knows, but like I have like a horror anthology series in my head, or I have a, I have a fantasy uh, series as well that I'd like when I'm maybe should be working on my thesis a little bit more. I might be thinking about this um, or when I just like, okay, it's, it's midnight. I'm going to put my thesis stuff away and now I'm going to, work on this for another like two, three hours. Cause I go to bed at 4am now. Thanks pandemic. Um, <laughs> I know so, the feeling. So do yeah. I. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's just now like, that's my body expects it. It's like, no, no, you're not going to bed at one o'clock in the morning. You crazy. No, no, no. Put on a cup of coffee and let's start thinking about this thing. Like, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'm always uh, looking out for the next Indiana Jones movies because I, I feel oh, like yeah. there's not enough films being made about archaeologists and, and archaeology in general. Yeah. I feel like there's a, a lack of that. Yeah, I, I think with the Indiana Jones, uh, Jones films, there's a lot of untapped potential. Like there's a lot of cool little MacGuffins from history that you can start to look at or curses or like whatever right the last movie which i don't know if i even want to talk about but we'll just say the last movie even incorporated aliens but yes yeah yeah that one was a little special i was not expecting it yeah <laughs> uh, uh yeah. so and then uh just quickly before we do run out of time is the painting because that is something you know i i interview artists i and i interview scientists and there is mm -hmm. absolutely a link between the arts and science oh yeah um i would love to interview someone who's actually studying that link that would be really cool mm -hmm. uh 
creativity and uh, and um, emotional expression is very different from the creativity and the intelligence that you use in science. Do you find yeah. that you kind of get a different um, flow, let's say, let's call it that, a different flow when you paint? I think so. Um, actually, since we're talking about it, I'm... I helped to organize, uh, there's an arts and science talk that we're having at the university and a creativity for scientists night that we're having next week as well with people in my department. Well, it's, it's faculty of science wide. Yeah. Um, I I think there's a lot of value in the arts and I think it's, it introduces a mindset that a lot of people don't actually, um, appreciate, especially in the sciences. Like I feel like a lot of scientists are like, no, no, I only do science and that's it. But art is meant for artists, but there is like, um even just like skills of observation like just something basic like a lot of us are now used to like looking at something really quickly and getting that information but like a painting actually can make you stop and if you stare at it long enough you'll start to pick up details that that first three second glance that you gave it you would have missed entirely right and you can start saying like i don't know i'm just it's a crowd of people okay great but then you start looking and then you might start realizing like little trends like oh like people on this side seem to be really sad for some reason and like why is that and then you'll see like in the distance something is happening or like you you start to notice little details or even things with with shading and how you know what like what does what does that mean or even just the general appreciation of how the person who painted this actually thought about the shadows and how trying to make as realistic as possible or even in in like in sculpture or even if you don't even want to get something that's like let's say classic art but like even like modern art like a lot of these ideas and concepts that are being communicated and it might look like something weird like okay this person got a banana and they like nailed it to a wall and they put like red paint on like what does that mean but then you think about their mindset and and what they were trying to communicate and if you spend time actually considering it it could actually be something insightful that you never thought about i Oh, dude, we could have a whole talk about how conceptual art, in my opinion, ruined art. But whatever, that's my own opinion. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? I, I I kind of agree, but at the same time, like I I, I get it sometimes, like what mm. people are going for. Um, I, I I tend to like more classical things, like how how well can you represent nature? Um, like like you know when like how detailed are the muscles and veins in this painting or in this um sculpture i i tend to mainly paint um nature stuff but um but like you're just trying to replicate the human form like that's so complicated and if you do it properly like it's it's amazing like look at the david like it's it's like stunning and and putting your own spin on it too you know that's part of art it's not a a purely intellectual pursuit but i totally get what you're saying like there's an aspect of realism that i i'm not a realist you know i don't like doing real stuff i like i like painting from the emotional Mm -hmm. um but it is an admirable thing when somebody can reproduce the muscles and or put their own spin like you know the group of seven and how they painted trees like oh my god i don't know if you've ever seen them in person but oh it is absolutely moving. Yeah. Um, on that note, listen, uh, we're out of time. And I just want to say thank you for coming on the program. Oh, I mean, thank you. I I can't even wrap my head around even this just just the stuff we talked about. We didn't even deep dive into your 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 top, your topic of specialties, and yeah. I I feel like I already have enough to really start pondering at three a.m. Uh, <laughs> you know <laughs> as to all what all of this means and what the possibilities are. So yeah. definitely at some point we should arrange to have you on the show again. I think it'd be a lot of fun. Amazing! I'd love that. 
Wonderful. Yeah. Well, thanks, thanks again for coming on the program. Thank you. Thank you.